We're going to be jumping into Acts chapter 13. We're just looking at the first four verses. First four verses of Acts chapter 13. Uh, This is uh, a pivotal moment uh, in the church's history. Uh, It's focused in on the gospel movement uh, that exploded out of Antioch uh, and the sending out of Paul and Barnabas uh, to bring the gospel actually to the known world at the time. Uh, And the risk that was involved and the step of faith that was involved in the church making this massive decision. And what we learn from these four verses are things that are absolutely necessary if we as a church who are coming up on nine years old in two weeks, if we want to be a movement, which was my heart when I started the church, but I just want you to know Uh, As Mark so brilliantly said to me uh, a few weeks ago, as we move into this next season, the more we can move away from the language of of my church and move toward that language of how do we as a community actually fulfill the unique vision that God has given us as a church, uh, the better off we will be. How do we actually become a movement? Because a movement uh, insinuates with that very word life and progress outward momentum. Uh, Not as your church gets older, what often happens, which is how do I protect what is mine? How do I work from a scarcity mentality, fearful of losing what has already been built? And we as a church cannot be afraid of the future. Uh, What we need to focus on is the moment and how do we actually grab a hold of this moment in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus to a city that desperately needs to hear about him. In these verses, we see how the church becomes a movement. We see what it looks like to have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and what it looks like to walk by faith and to be centered on the gospel. So I'm going to read these four verses, and then we'll, we'll talk more about what that looks like. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Uh, this is the first multicultural church where we see here, even in, in this opening verse, uh, almost the precursor to elders. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So these, these five men uh, were, were a group of prophets and teachers within this, this multi-ethnic community. And look what they did. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and I don't believe this is just speaking of those five leaders, but that this is speaking of the entire church community, uh, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, we don't know how the Holy Spirit said what he said, but probably the Spirit gave someone a word in the context of this worshiping and fasting, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In other words, you're going to take, for those of you that remember, uh, uh, when it was Tim and I teaching 50-50, that would be like the Holy Spirit instructing the church to send Tim and I away at the same time. Uh, this, is a, this is incredibly counterintuitive to what we think about when we think about what does it look like for a church to move, to actually fulfill its vision. What I'm getting at is not that I'm leaving. I just want you to know that. What I'm saying is that there is a necessity within the church to live courageously on the frontier of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to how it is the Spirit can fulfill the unique vision that God has given to us as a community of faith. And then look what, look what happens. It says, then after fasting and praying, so the church comes together, 
fasting and praying. I look at worshiping and fasting, fasting and praying. They laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This morning, as I was praying over this text, I had planned on covering all the way through verse 12, and I was actually going to put my emphasis upon the interaction or the conflict between Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, and Bar-Jesus, the, the, the wizard of Cyprus, the magician of Cyprus. But as I began to look at these first four passages, I began to believe that God was speaking to me in a unique way, saying, door of hope is having its Antioch moment right now. That we are at, at an, a, a very important transition stage in our church's life. We, right in this very moment, are in the process of, we just hired Todd to uh, take over youth ministry, which we're super excited about. Uh, him and Carrie have been amazing. Uh, it just, as they jumped into the church in the last year and have been so engaged, many of you know them. Uh, often uh, we we hire from within because those who are called to ministry are often identified by the community as a whole. But we also are in the process, we, we've had two um, uh, exciting interviews with uh, possible women pastors in the last, uh, women's ministry pastor in the last couple weeks. Uh, we are going to be looking for um, a, a permanent uh, children's uh, pastor uh, in, the, in the coming months. Uh, we're in the process as a, as elders and as leadership as staff, uh, actually considering what it is the next step. How do we get back to that original vision that, that Door of Hope was kind of built around? And the original vision was, what would it look like if we were a community of churches that were strategically placed in the various neighborhoods of the urban core of Portland, taking over old churches, restoring them, bringing them back to life, and seeing gospel-inspired communities around the city of Portland? Remember, two years ago, we came into Revolution Hall uh, not to put the brakes on that vision but, uh, or to, to, to move away from that, but actually to step back and to recognize that there was some interior work that needed to be done, infrastructure work that needed to be done if we actually want to fulfill that vision. This was never meant to be the end game. Uh, and so we, have, we own this building in Northeast Portland, and we're trying to figure out what do we do with that building? Because we want the gospel. Right now, there's a, ch a faithful church that's meeting there on Sunday mornings, but we feel like there's, God has more for that space. And we, we want the gospel to go forth. We want to fulfill that unique vision. We're in conversation with, uh, with a place in Southeast, and what does that look like? And does that mean that we should be doing church plants, or does that mean we should consider parishes or some sort of hybrid of those things? And these are big discussions that are happening. And what I see in this passage in Antioch is that this was not something that was just kept amongst the, the closed, closed doors of elders, but that this was something that the community as a whole was brought in to pray and fast around. And, and keep in mind that even as leaders made decisions, the leaders were deeply rooted and connected to the community as a whole so that they became healthy, healthy and, and faithful representatives of that community as a whole. And so I believe that this passage is actually speaking to us in this very crucial time when I believe that there is this both at, this, at one moment this excitement and this sense that God is doing something new. And at the same time, there's this transition period where it's this kind of painful reality as a church moves to the, this stage of nine years old. We're not the newest, coolest game in town anymore. I mean, we're pretty cool. But I mean, your pastor doesn't look like a white 
Anglo Jesus any longer. Uh, his hair was thinning. It's all, all of this is, it's all falling apart, man. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. People come and people go and it's painful when people that you love go, move on because they don't feel as connected anymore or the church has changed or I don't like Revolution Hall or I didn't like, North. all these things that are realities that create ebb and flow within church life and what it can create within us is something that's systemic, which is a fear and an anxiousness around the, the possibility that we can lose it all. I heard just recently, um, there's been this talk of this big giant event that's coming um, to Portland, uh, this gospel event uh, um, from a a much more kind of hyper charismatic stream that's happening in September. And a a mailer went out about it um, from uh, from the Palau organization, and, and there was some pushback and Churches were un, uncertain of it, and, and all I could think, and this is so interesting, uh, I, I, I just immediately became frustrated. And I was frustrated because the, the, the whole premise of this giant event was that uh, it was around the need for revival in Portland. And the need for revival in Portland was basically being stated by a group of people that don't live here and aren't engaged in the church here. And I wasn't reached out to by the, by the guy that was putting it on. And so I took offense to that. I'm like, who comes into a city and just says, we're going to bring revival to the city because there's no churches doing any work there. And then the Lord, can, I just want you to know, I'm going somewhere with this story. Uh, <laughs> the Lord, uh, I just want you to know that this isn't a rebuke to that organization or that individual. This is a rebuke to me. As the Lord actually spoke to me and said, oh, I'm sorry, is the gospel yours? Is Door of Hope the only church in Portland that preaches the gospel? Are, are, do, you, do you have the rights to the gospel? Oh, you don't, you don't fully align with their theological grid, therefore it can't be of any, any heavenly use or earthly use? And I felt like the Lord just said, who are you? I, I felt like the Lord spoke to me the same way that he spoke to Peter when Peter wanted to know what was going to happen to John. And he's like, don't worry about John, you just follow me. But I do know this, that as I became convicted by the fact that there is this group of people, these healers and evangelists that are coming in to bring revival to the city, and I became frustrated, like, that's our vision. That's what we said. I coined the phrase revival for Portland, right? No. Uh, And I worked for a church that actually was called revival. I'm like, just because you called your church revival doesn't mean you get to own that word. but what does it mean to have an awakening? This is the heart of all the pastors that I know that are preaching the gospel in the city. And, and what the Lord really spoke to me was, listen, Josh, all I know is if door of hope begins to become fearful, trying to protect what it already has, afraid to step out and recognize that the gospel isn't meant to be kept to ourselves, but if we aren't going to be a faithful witness, I will raise up whoever I want to bring revival in Portland. And if it's not you, it'll be someone else because nothing can stop my plans or purposes for the very goal of the gospel, which is to seek and save that which is lost. When I read this passage in Antioch, I was struck with this deep conviction. Here is a church willing to give up their key leaders that the gospel might go forth. And because of that, it was a church that flourished. And I'm not saying that you need to give us all up. I'm not saying that I'm going anywhere. What I am saying is that we have a responsibility to continue to live on that frontier, that edge of faith, 
and to step out. One thing that we had in the early days of Door of Hope that we need to have again in this current moment is not a repeat of what happened, but simply reminding of what it is like to fall in love with Jesus. I feel like God is speaking to us the word that he spoke to the church in Revelation. You have forgotten your first love. Remember, repent, and repeat. Look here at this, because I think that, that John Piper said it best when he says, more and more I believe that this book, that is the book of Acts, is in the New Testament to prevent the church from coasting to a standstill and entering a maintenance mode with all the inner wheels working but going nowhere. We are on a precipice of change right now. And change is scary for people, and people don't like it. But what I realized and what's giving me the confidence to actually step out in faith along with the elders and with the staff is this, is that no matter what direction we take, there's a risk in all of it. And so we need the guidance of the Spirit, and we need a calm confidence in the power of the gospel to save. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Here we have the church in Antioch gathered to fast and pray and worship, evidently in hope that the Spirit would speak and give guidance about what they should or should not do next. And what the Spirit planned for this church was the greatest missionary breakthrough in the history of the world. Saul and Barnabas would launch the Christian movement into Asia Minor, and then Paul would carry it into Greece and Italy. It's incredible what God did through a church that was willing to say, none of this is mine. It's all Christ, and I am his. So number one, door of hope cannot be a gospel movement if we do not move. I think that's really important. Door of hope cannot be a gospel movement if we do not move. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice that the church here is a community and it's still this very thing and we must be this thing or God will raise up someone else. It says, if, if, if they don't worship me, God will raise up the rocks to worship me. I think this is important. The church is a community that exists under Jesus for the world because God is for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But how shall they hear if there's no preacher to preach? And what is the responsibility of the community? Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which means that all of us have a responsibility that he doesn't just save us out of hell to get us into heaven, but he actually empowers us by his spirit as we put our faith in him that through us he can witness the truth of his saving love to a lost world. We've been having a lot of conversation right now about what does it mean to be doing missions and what does it mean to do international missions. And, 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 and I would say that, listen, we can talk about international missions and it's important that we recognize that Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we can send people out to the other ends of the world, but what if we can't even reach the people in our backyard? And so God has called us to this unique vision to actually have a missionary heart toward the city of Portland. We have to move outward. We cannot cloister ourselves, protect ourselves in. It's one of the things that I dislike about a space like this is it actually breeds this, this kind of safety of these closed walls, no windows out. We're, we're, we're safe in here. 
The city can't mock us in here. But God has called us to be a witness, and the gospel movement cannot happen if we don't move. Anywhere where the gospel has moved powerfully in history, it is because people have caught fire for Jesus, and they cannot rest until they share it with others. It's been pretty much that simple and that straightforward. The Spirit is a missionary spirit, and our commission is to go. I think that one of the dangers that we are running into is the church was never meant to simply maintain or even worse, hide. But we as a church need to recognize that we run the risk if we try to simply protect what is ours and hold still in case, because we don't want to take any risks because we could blow the whole thing up. Let God blow the whole thing up if he wants to. Let us just be faithful to the gospel. We can't function in fear. We can't be like the man. I, I, run, I realize that so many churches fall into this trapping. And believe me, when I speak this, I'm speaking to, my own, to myself. I, I need these words because there is a lot at stake. When you have nothing to lose, it's easy to give everything. When you have some, some levels of what the world calls success, it becomes a terrifying thing of losing anything. But here is the reality. Jesus said of the, talent, of the parable of the talents, and this is what I get fearful of. Remember the, the one person, a group of people were given talents and, and they invested them accordingly, but one person took the one talent that he was given and he buried it because he was fearful of losing it. It says, he who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But you remember the words of the master were not good words, not easy words. He actually referred to him as wicked, wicked for not investing what was given to him. Doesn't that speak significantly to our concepts of salvation? Number two, door of hope to be a gospel movement desperately needs guidance from the Spirit. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I think this is really significant. We have put together uh, a, a committee within the elders uh, that, uh, that are actually focusing on a detailed kind of five-year plan for Door of Hope. And believe me, I, I'm like, the way that I work is create as you go. I mean, that's just the artistic temperament in me, uh, which is, works really well in starting a church. Like, don't even worry about plans and structure. Just step out in faith and go for it. Well, that actually isn't necessarily what Proverbs says. It says that there's, that there's wisdom in counsel. There's wisdom in thinking clearly. But, but notice it says, it says that the Lord establishes his steps. And the question that I have for you as we are trying to create these plans and what I'm trying to inform you on uh, is that, that these conversations are happening and we want to represent Jesus faithfully, but we also want to represent you as a community faithfully. And the, in order to do that, we have to actually have wise counsel. But wise counsel desperately needs to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. And the question that I have is, is how do we actually gain guidance from the Holy Spirit as a community? How do we actually create a sensitivity to the Spirit? And there are three disciplines that are mentioned within this text that I think shows us how it is that we can be the movement that God has called us to be. I just want to point out 
one thing that's important, even in thinking about this event in September or even my own desires to see revival. Nobody can cause a revival. God alone brings revivals. But I do believe that we as a church can prevent revivals from happening. And one of the ways that we can prevent a revival from happening, at least within our midst, is by being a prayerless church uh, and being a church that does not worship in spirit and truth and being a church that does not work to develop the disciplines of intimacy with Jesus. And there are three disciplines that are put here. Two of them um, you may think about and exercise on some level. One of them you probably neglect if you're like most, uh, including myself. And the three that are mentioned is prayer and fasting and worship. Worship may be being less of a discipline and more of a reorientation of the heart because everyone worships. The question isn't what uh, if I worship or not, the question is, what do I worship? But first of all, prayer. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, not if you pray or should you think to pray, but when you pray, just assuming that that would be the normal practice of anyone that was a follower of him. In fact, the disciples never asked Jesus how to preach. They only wanted to know how it was that he prayed because they saw prayer as the source of all his power and authority on earth. In order for us to be a church that moves toward, toward ultimately an awakening in the city, I can promise you we may not be able to, to cause the awakening, but we can prevent it by our prayerlessness. For every great awakening, every movement of God in church history has always had prayer at the front end. Vital, by the sweat of your brow type prayer. In January, we prayed for 23 days straight, and I saw something really powerful during that time. And that is, is that the more people came and prayed and, and entered into that discipline, that spiritual discipline, and took Jesus at his words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And as we gathered together morning after morning to pray, and it was fascinating. I, I, and the, now when we meet on Tuesday, we meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. And I know that many of you can't come because of work schedules, but there are many of you that can come that just choose not to because you don't want to be disrupt, you don't want your sleep disrupted. You don't, you don't have the discipline of rising early because you have the unfortunate discipline of staying up too late. Because to finish the show that you were watching, binge watching the night before is more important than actually giving yourself to prayer and seeking God, not simply on behalf of your needs, but on behalf of the needs of the community and the desire to actually see the gospel go forth. You see, what I've seen in my own life is that prayerlessness is actually directly connected to my self-centeredness and my desire to keep my desires at the forefront rather than making Christ's desires my desires. And that doesn't just happen but it actually requires the disciplining of oneself by faith to enter into the activities of Christ until they become our passion. And so I'd encourage you guys, do you guys wanna come and pray? Because I'm there to make coffee this Tuesday morning. I will meet you with my short haircut and my gold front tooth and I'll say, welcome, come pray, <laughs> brother, sister. And I won't even pray with you in your group because I found out that when I pray that it affects how people pray when their pastor's sitting with them. So I'll sit up above you and pray over you while you're praying. Uh, but here's the thing. I, for the, those 23 days, I would, I would pray 
uh, in different groups. And I, I found that the first, few, the first few days, people spent a lot of time talking about what it is they wanted to pray for. And by the end, it was just like people just got into this rhythm and just began to just allow the Spirit to lead, allow the Spirit to guide. We cannot actually fulfill God's vision unless we're a Spirit-filled church. The Spirit's filling requires the attuning of one's heart and mind to the things of God, to make Him a priority. That's what prayer does. Prayer is something that we actually have to exercise in order to become good at it. And here's the thing. The only reason people don't like to pray for me is under this false assumption that I'm some sort of professional prayer because that's what I'm paid to do. But the most beautiful prayers are the simplest, most unrefined prayers. The prayer that just says, help, thanks, I need you, save me. Come pray with us because prayer is necessary and there's a lot to pray about right now and we need your prayers. We as leadership need your prayers desperately. This isn't my church this is Christ's church, this is, and we're his body, and this is our community, we should pray for our community, and we should pray that God utilizes us powerfully and breaks away the things that are hindering our ability to hear from him. Notice the second, the second uh, thing that this church is doing is a, it's a discipline that is often forgotten and neglected, and that's the discipline of fasting, because who likes to be hungry? And in America, and especially in a city like Portland, where food is... Um, one of our ultimate escapes, the great pleasures of our city. We live in a city of pleasure, it, incredible food. Darcy and I just went away to Vashon for a week and we were like, there was all this talk about this Thai restaurant there and how it's the best. People from Seattle go all the way to Vashon Island to eat there. And then we're just like, eh, we have potty and pock pock. I mean, there's just like, come on, like we're super blessed. But the bottom line is that what is fasting? Fasting is never an end in and of itself. It's the negative action, abstention from food or even other distractions for the sake of a positive one that's worshiping or praying. You want to know how fasting works and works powerfully? Fasting works only powerfully when when you give up the meal, you replace that meal with prayer. That's what this church did. This constant practice of fasting, it wasn't like they just starved themselves all week. There was obviously, they had a serious question God, we sense that you are moving us toward a major decision right now, and we are going to give ourselves to that. We're going to pray, and we're going to worship you until you tell us what to do. And it's powerful. Fasting is something that I, I try intermittent fasting. The most basic fast in Scripture is actually just the fast where you eat dinner, and then you don't eat again until the next dinner, the next day. That's the most normal kind of biblical fast. And that's actually a doable thing. To put aside breakfast and lunch and replace breakfast and lunch with, with prayer and fasting, I encourage you, as we're getting away as a staff in uh, a week from Tuesday, we'll be going away to like really think through and talk through all the possibilities of, of how to move the church forward and, and where God has for us and how long should we stay at this place and how should we utilize what God has blessed us with uh, I would encourage you to pick one of those days and fast for us and pray for us. Uh, we could use it. I generally fast on, on Sunday mornings, uh, except today I broke down and ate bacon because I got up really early. Uh, so God forgives. The question is, is, are we even willing to try it? Are we willing to even try it? Uh, Jesus once again said, when you fast. So just note, 
that in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, and if you decide to try fasting, he just assumed that that would be a normal activity within his disciples' lives. But I think worship is a key thing that we have here. Uh, they were worshiping and fasting, and worshiping is the first word that's mentioned. And remember, we often define worship as the song sung before a service, but a church that is actually a part of a movement recognizes that worship is so much deeper than that, that everybody worships. The question is, what do we worship? That is, what have we given our full allegiance, our full attention to? And as I like to define worship, worship begins in submission, the first time the word is described in the Bible is when Abraham is sacrificing, getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. It doesn't have anything to do with singing kumbaya. It has everything to do with sacrifice. It has everything to do with submission, surrender. And so it is that worship begins in submission, but it's initiated by the Spirit. You remember what Jesus said? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. A church that is moving the gospel movement toward a gospel movement is a church that is seeking God's face and in seeking God's face is willing to lay down the distractions that hinder us from intimacy with him, even willing to go without food to know him a little bit closer, to actually draw near to him. But it's a truly a church that worships and a church that worships is a church that is submitted to Christ's lordship is a church that is, that is spirit-filled and initiated by the Spirit, defined by truth. The Spirit doesn't just lead us into everything. The Spirit points us toward Jesus. For truth for us is not a body of knowledge, but it's a person to know. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. How do we know that we're a worshiping church? If worship begins in submission, it's initiated in the Spirit, it's defined by truth, it is ultimately expressed in love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. These are the things that this church is doing. Door of Hope to be a gospel movement needs guidance from the Spirit. Are we a Spirit-filled community? Do we have a sensitivity to the Spirit? Door of Hope can't be a gospel movement if it doesn't move, but our movement needs to be Spirit-guided. Door of Hope can't move without faith. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. One of the things that I want you to note in this passage that I think is really fascinating is that the Spirit says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. And then it says, they sent them out, but it doesn't actually give any details of what it means to be set apart, where, did it, where, it is, that they're, where it is they're supposed to go. They, 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 they feel led to go to Cy- on to Cyprus, but all they know, and see, Paul knows exactly what to do, and that is, We are given a message, that is the gospel. To be a preacher, to preach, is to be a herald. That means that the message is confined by particular parameters. We aren't preaching if we're not proclaiming Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended, him sending his spirit. But I think that this is a powerful thing because there is a faith element because they don't know how they're going to survive it. As we know from Paul's journeys, across the land, that he was beaten, that he was whipped, that he was stoned, that he was hungry, that he was robbed. All of these things happened to him. Uh, and the Spirit doesn't say, hey, just so you know, these things are going to happen to you. The Spirit says, go here, preach the gospel, and they by faith stepped out. And this tells us something about what it means to be a church that is actually a part of a gospel movement, is to recognize first and foremost that the gospel is not safe. Jesus says, follow me, and he doesn't even say where he's going. But the power of of being fallen in love with Christ and being so radically saved is it doesn't matter where I'm going as long as I'm with Jesus. 
And it doesn't matter where he leads me because I know that it's going to lead me into difficulty because the world, we are told, is under the sway of the wicked one. And it doesn't matter that there's going to be conflict because Jesus says, listen, in this world, you will have conflict. So it's not like Jesus is pulling any punches. And he says, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And that my confidence and my joy is actually more significant than my happiness, that temporary happiness that comes from trying to protect what is mine. As I said last week, it actually never leaves us happy. It leaves us even more miserable. The safer we try to live our lives, the more confined and conflicted we become. For if we put ourselves at the center of our existence, only despair follows. Door of hope can't move without faith. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. It required a tremendous amount of faith for this church to send out their two best preachers and to trust the Lord that God would take care of his church. You know, a lot of people ask me when I hired, uh, hired Tim Mackey, for those of you who are here, uh, uh, when I hired him, uh, what, man, what, you sure you want to hire this guy? What if he's a better teacher than you? And I'm like, he is a better teacher than me. And so I was nervous to hire him. But then once I hired him, then it was a whole different fear. What if he leaves? So there's no winning. I have to hire him because he's better than me, but then I'm terrified that he might leave after he comes because he's that good. And what happened? He left. And why did he leave? Because God actually called him. And why did the church celebrate it? Because it was a beautiful thing. Because the, gospel, because the Bible project was birthed out of Door of Hope. Can you imagine if we wouldn't have taken that step of faith and hired him to begin with? Or if we had all thrown a big fit when he said, God's opened up this door to preach the gospel through this amazing venue around the whole world. We're like, well, that's fine, but you're ours. Uh, that, <laughs> that wouldn't have gone over very well. You see, a church to be a gospel movement has to allow life by the Spirit to take, the Lord can give and the Lord can take away. We should hold it all with an open hand. That's what he's telling me right now. Josh, don't be afraid. It's not yours, it's mine. Hold it with an open hand. These aren't your people. This isn't your church. It's my church. And we belong to him together. And he's called us to this unique thing. And we have to have the faith to step out and preach God's gospel with a fervency because we might not have tomorrow. That's why Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. And let me just say this about that verse. Door of hope can't move without faith. It can't move without being spirit-led. Let me just tell you, one of the things that will put us, create um, a deadness in our church is unconfessed, unrepentant sin. When Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, he isn't saying, don't be anxious if you're living in blatant sin. You should be very anxious about that, for sin will find you out. And the power of a church community is the power to confess. Gospel is not being preached if it doesn't call us to change and transformation, specifically to repentance. And one of the things the Lord convicted me on is actually even confessing to you guys the wrong, the, the ways that I was upset about another person coming into the city and preaching the gospel in my city. It's not my city. I should be like the Apostle Paul, even if the person is preaching from the wrong for, for the wrong pursuit, out of vain ambition, Paul says, I'm just glad the gospel's being preached. See here, we are not to worry about what they're doing over there or they're doing over there. The only thing we are to focus on is what is right before us today 
And how can I be that witness to Jesus Christ today? And, and Lord, if I am anxious, is that anxiety actually the spirit prompting my heart to confess an area of sin that's unconfessed because a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And I just think it's important to point out that it's, it's very difficult to walk by faith when you are reluctant to release sin. Finally, Door of Hope to be a gospel movement must be motivated by nothing but the gospel. When they arrived at Salamis, it says they proclaimed the word of God. We're told that Paul went around and he preached the word of God. The word of God, to proclaim the word of God was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't just here to learn a bunch of interesting things. The world is filled with Gnostic pursuits. What that is, is that pursuit of secret knowledge. I'm a guy that's interested in everything. So everything inspires me. Everything interests me. But the danger of that is to lose our center, to actually think that we should graduate beyond the simplicity of the gospel, to actually think that we should move beyond the simplicity of what it means to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to give our lives to Jesus. We should move on to deeper and heavier things. Right now, I'm reading through the works of Carl Jung. Fascinating. He's a Gnostic. He's just a Gnostic. It's all about the divine within you and self-improvement and mysterious writing that's hard to crack. I just find it interesting. But interesting doesn't save. Jesus saves. And that is what we are called to proclaim. And I see churches all the time in its attempts to maintain what it has. It tries to move itself toward new conversations around interesting topics, offering people secret information, secret knowledge to an enlightened life when what we should be preaching is Christ and him crucified. This is why Paul, who was the smartest man the church has ever known, said, I have determined to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. And you see, to be a spirit-filled church, I don't even trust churches that talk only about the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit isn't pointing us to Jesus, it's a different spirit because there is only one message that we are called to proclaim and that is the gospel that saves lives. And what greater miracle is there than the revolution of a, of a human soul? Not that I, don't, I disagree or, or don't believe in signs and wonders and even casting out of demons. I've seen all of those things, but none of those things matter if it isn't connected directly to the proclamation of the gospel. And what I see in this early church is a spirit-filled church that was not afraid to step out in faith under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the world. And I believe this is what it means for us to be a part of a movement, which is what I want for us more than anything. May we preach Christ and Him crucified. May we walk by faith. May we be guided by the Holy Spirit. And may we be a movement that actually moves out into the life of the gospel. Amen?